Hello and welcome to Camp Kaiju Monster Movie Reviews. We're your hosts, Vincent Hannum, Matt Levine, and we're talking about all our favorite monster movies, the good, the bad, and the downright campy, and asking if they stand the test of time. Kaiju, creature features, space invaders, the supernatural, and everything in between. All strange beasts welcome here. Camp Kaiju is sponsored by BanditsEmporium.com, where you can shop exclusive monster-inspired t-shirts with part of the proceeds supporting this show. BanditsEmporium.com. Hit the link in our bio. As they say, we sell shirts. Hey, as Camp Kaiju says, stay campy, everybody. A really, really interesting uh, horror, crime, fantasy, you name it, balls to the wall type movie from the early 30s. Thank you for enjoying Camp Kaiju on Instagram, wherever you podcast, even on Patreon. Um, You can please rate and review wherever you do listen to Camp Kaiju. We super appreciate that. Uh, As we're headed into October, Matt, did you want to dish a little bit about the website and what we got going on? Search for Camp Kaiju movie reviews. I'm, you know, yeah, like in addition to like all of our past episodes and some like uh, reviews of movie that, movies that we've talked about on the podcast and some that we haven't talked about on the podcast, uh, we'll also have uh, some other content coming up, including uh, check back on Saturday, October 1st, for a list of the 31 best monster movies to watch for the month of October. Should be a very fun and enjoyable list for your Halloween movie watching purposes. I can't wait to see that. Um, for those of you who don't know, uh, Matt and Frank, you know, they have uh, at least an educational background in film studies. Anytime I get a chance, you guys, to pick your brain about these films, to hear what you have to recommend, I'm here for it. Before we get into that, I just I also want to plug our Patreon. Uh, for October, where we are like, there's going to be a lot of content available on Patreon only to patrons. Full episodes, such as this one, will always be free to the masses. But on Patreon, you can find exclusive bonus things to check out. It's only five bucks a month. Okay, Frank, welcome. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Back by popular demand once again. <laughs> oh, yeah. All your, uh, what, are your, what do you call your groupies? Oh, the Frankaholics. Yeah. They're going to be very excited. Your uh, your downloads are going to go way up because of that. So. <laughs> so you're welcome. Yeah. The fan mail has already started coming in. Oh, good. We won't tell you what they said, though. Uh, <laughs> but, they're, but they're coming. Um, Frank, this was your pick. You wanted to talk about this. This was on your short list. What's your personal history with this film? Yeah, so so back a couple months ago when uh, Matt had uh, had invited me onto the podcast, he you know asked me to come up with a, a couple potential movies to do. Um, so you know the the ones I I previously guested on with you guys, um, which was uh, Rodan and, and Shin Godzilla, were uh, like the top two kaiju movies I could think of to do that you guys hadn't already done, and then uh, you know. I know you guys also did some some stuff that isn't you know necessarily specifically kaiju stuff, but that is just more like horror or supernatural type stuff. And so I was thinking of okay, what's my favorite movie that's got like supernatural kind of horror elements in it? And it's this one, uh, Testament of Doctor Mabusa. So 
Uh, as far as my my personal history with it, um, you know, Fritz Lang is is my favorite director of all time. Um, his movie M, which is the the movie that he made right before this one, uh, is actually my favorite movie of all time. Mm. Um, but on the Criterion DVD of that one, I, I remember years ago I was watching the one of the special features on that a documentary or something, and it had a clip from this movie, The Testament of Dr. Mabusa, which uh, is the part where, um, like, the ghostly apparition of Mabusa appears in front of the, the doctor and is kind of, like, whispering his, you know, just his, like, ideology of chaos to him. And that uh, clip alone was so cool that I actually bought the DVD of Testament of Dr. Mabusa before I'd seen the movie. Because I just thought, like, even just for, you know, that one scene, if the rest of the movie is, like, anywhere near as good as that, it's got to be awesome. And it is. So it's, it yeah, just a really really great movie i've probably seen it i don't know this was probably my seventh or eighth time watching it now it i it's it's one of my favorites and uh yeah just uh just a wonderful movie and you know an interesting one that i think a lot of your listeners would probably would probably be into but it's also maybe something that they haven't seen so i thought it would be a cool one to talk about i'm with you on a lot of that uh Matt, you're also familiar with this film, right? Yeah, but I heard about it from Frank quite a while ago. I think I actually borrowed the DVD from you after you bought it um, when we both lived in Milwaukee. So this must have been, oh man, 20 years ago? Maybe a little bit less than 20 years ago. But um, I also am a huge Fritz Lang fan. Uh, You know, I had seen M. I had seen Metropolis. There were probably a couple other ones that I had seen as well, like maybe some of his American movies like Fury, I think I had seen at that time. But um, but I had never seen this one and, uh, it's amazing. Like I was blown away by it, you know, like, like you guys already said, it's, uh, it's a weird mixture of horror and crime and, and, and also relates so much to what was going on politically and socially in Germany at the time in 1933 in really kind of disturbing, but also really visceral and intense and honestly, very exciting ways. So, um, yeah. And then when I went to Emory for grad school, I, I took a class all about Fritz Lang. Um, so I, which was an awesome class. Amazing. We, yeah, uh, we tried to watch everything in his career, but that's like a ton of movies. He was extremely prolific, first of all, in Germany, and then he made one movie in France and then in the United States. So, uh, yeah, so it was a big undertaking, but a fascinating, fascinating class. We read a book by Tom Gunning. It's all about the films of Fritz Lang, which is really highly recommended and goes very much in depth about this movie. So, uh, check that book out if you like this movie. See, this is what I love about Camp Kaiju that we can talk about like the cer- the obvious, you know, popcorn fair, our Godzilla's things like that. But then I truly love digging into, you know, maybe maybe obscure is not the the best word because people who know about this movie know about this movie, right? Um, but movies that that the broader, wider audience doesn't necessarily have on their radar, but they should have on their radar. Um, I didn't know about this movie until two months ago when Frank brought it to my attention. Didn't even know how to pronounce Mabuza. I'm still not 100% on that. But uh, but I do love Fritz Lang. And for listeners, Fritz Lang is as important to this conversation about the movie as anything. It's like 
talking about Jaws, not talking about Steven Spielberg. Like Fritz Lang is an icon in film history. Um, I've only seen a couple of his films. I have seen M blew me away a few years ago. I, which has a connection to this film. The Captain Lohman is in M. Uh, I need to revisit M, but I was like, oh, I love Lohman. I got to see more of him. Um, I've also seen Fury 1936 with Spencer Tracy. Just such a powerful film. And that's his American stuff. And like Dr. Mabusa and M, his, his, the beginning of his career was in Germany, silent films, um, expressionistic, all genres and tropes that I love anyways. So yeah, Fritz Lang has my heart 100%. Yeah. And I think like, you know, he's, he's very well known for his German movies, of course. And I feel like a lot of people maybe think that his American movies are inferior or that he kind of had to struggle with a lot of like interference from producers. And that's, that's certainly true. But I like, he made a handful of masterpieces in the United States, like not only Fury, but Scarlet Street, The Big Heat, um, you only live once. Uh, so yeah, I mean, he, he was, you know, his, the, the quality varied a little bit and he had to deal with lower budgets throughout his career, but he was making fantastic films for, for decades throughout a lot of the 20th century. So, uh, yeah, like Frank said, one of the, and, and, and you all also Vincent, one of the best ever for sure. Do we want to get into the plot synopsis? Let's do it. Yeah. Okay. Everyone spoiler alerts. All right. In a cramped room as the sound of some kind of machine chugs away on the soundtrack, a disgraced detective named Hoffmeister spies on a criminal gang. When they discover him, he barely flees their attempts to kill him. Having escaped, Hoffmeister calls his former superior, a no-nonsense police inspector named Lohman, and explains that he has uncovered a vast criminal conspiracy. Before Hoffmeister can disclose the identity of the mastermind, the lights go out, shots are fired, and Hoffmeister grows even more insane. He vanishes only to turn up later at the mental asylum run by Professor Baum, feeling that he's constantly being surveilled and singing maniacally. In the same asylum, Professor Baum leads a class in which he introduces the case of Dr. Mabusa, a psychiatrist, criminal mastermind, and hypnotist who 10 years earlier went mad. Mabusa spends his days frantically writing detailed plans for an empire of crime, as a gang commits them according to the demands of a leader with whom they confer only from behind a curtain. When Baum's colleague Dr. Krom discovers that recent crimes follow Mabusa's writings exactly, Krom is then shot on a busy street by the gang's execution squad. Meanwhile... A clue scratched into a glass window at the site of Hoffmeister's disappearance leads Lohman to suspect Mabuza, even though he's still imprisoned at the asylum. When Lohman arrives at the mental institution, Baum reveals that Mabuza has died. Well, Lohman disparagingly talks about Mabuza the criminal, but Baum aggressively corrects him and calls him Mabuza the genius, whose brilliance would have destroyed a corrupt world. Baum continues to study Mabusa's writings and is apparently possessed, whether literally or figuratively, by the ghost of Mabusa, who speaks of an unlimited reign of crime. On the same night, a hidden man behind the curtain gives orders to members of his gang, preparing various crimes such as an attack on a chemical plant, bank robbery, counterfeiting money, and poisoning the water system. One of the gang members, Thomas Kent, 
is forced to work for Mabusa's organization for money, though he disagrees with its violent methods and hides his complicity from his sweetheart, Lily. Kent eventually confesses his criminal actions to her. They decide to inform the police, but are abducted by members of the criminal gang and locked in the strange meeting room with the curtain. The hidden figure announces their death. Kent and Lily pull back the curtain to reveal only a microphone, a loudspeaker, and the cutout silhouette of a man. They are told they only have three hours to live and hear the ticking of a bomb. They eventually flood the place by cutting open a water line, lessening the impact of the explosion and breaking free when the bomb goes off. Following a lead on one of the gang members, the police infiltrate an apartment where several gangsters are staying. After a shootout, one of them commits suicide and the other gangsters surrender. At the police station, Loman arranges a meeting between the gangsters and the professor, which proves inconclusive. But when Kent and Lily arrive, Baum's shocked reaction makes Loman suspicious. Loman and Kent visit the asylum, where they discover that Baum is the mastermind and has planned an attack on a chemical plant that night. Loman and Kent go to the plant, where they discover Baum watching from afar. Baum flees to the asylum with Loman and Kent pursuing. Mabusa's spirit leads Baum to Hoffmeister in his cell, where he introduces himself as Dr. Mabusa, ending Hoffmeister's shock. Baum tries to kill Hoffmeister, but is stopped by guards just in time. An insane bomb now occupies Mabusa's cell, tearing the dead man's writings to shreds. Um, just when you think you're watching like a straight-laced crime thriller, you have like this supernatural ghostly element. I think it works exceptionally well. It, you know, I was reading on the uh, the Wikipedia article for uh, this movie, and I, I think I'd seen it somewhere else too that... Uh, that Fritz Lang, like, later on in his life would say that the, uh, you know, he regretted putting the supernatural elements in this movie, but they're awesome. Like, <laughs> I, I think they're they're done perfectly, and they, they sort of contribute to the, the movie's, you know, themes, which we'll get into later, of, like, the, you know, the way that, uh, you know, ideologies can, can, like, pass to different people and, and poison them, and and you could, you know, really with all of the supernatural stuff, you could take it as, you know, either like a literal, um, a literal thing where like these, these ghosts are haunting these people or as just like a figurative thing where it's like, you know, this is just a, a way to depict like their madness. So, yeah, I, I think it's, it's exceptionally well done on, on both or, Really, and, and one of the cool things about this movie in general is how it kind of works on on both of those levels, on like a pulpy level where it's this, uh, you know, fun, crazy stuff, and also on a thematic level where it's, it's getting into, uh, you know, just how these, these ideologies can get out of control. Yeah, and I, I love all the stuff, of course, with like Mabusa's spirit sort of like um, possessing Baum. All that stuff looks amazing and is uh, really innovative special effects. But also all the scenes with uh, with Hoffmeister kind of going mad are just like so bizarre in initially kind of subtle ways where like there are some like props on his desk that look translucent and very monstrous and you don't really know exactly why they're there. And then as he sort of descends deeper into madness... Uh, not only is there one really incredible shot where he sort of hallucinates two ghosts coming at him and they are like, um, you know, translucent figures that are like walking through this like diagonal 
room that looks like it might come out of like the, the cabinet of Dr. Caligari or something. Um, so that like shots like that are amazing, but also like the set design, like gets more and more bizarre whenever Hoffmeister is around, or at least in a couple shots where like the entire set seems translucent and you don't know what's real or what's fake. Um, like stuff like that just conveys so viscerally a descent into madness. It's really, really creepy. Yeah, absolutely. Meanwhile, um, I had just, so the night, two nights before I watched this film, I revisited the silence of the lambs, which as a, as a police procedural is just so riveting, so compelling. And I was like watching Mabusa and following our, our, uh, main protagonist, one of our main protagonists, Captain Loman. I was like, oh, he's a detective on the case. And there's like twists and turns and he's analyzing evidence. There's a scene where they go to the forensics lab to analyze the, the glass with the scratches on it. And, and contextually, historically, forensics was in its infancy at this point in time, in the early 30s. But we're seeing... The, a story that we take for granted in the 21st century, these like cop dramas, police procedurals. And we're seeing Fritz Lang explore that. Yeah, it is. You know, it's just like such a compelling story, but there's also so much beneath it. It's kind of like a perfect combination to me, you know? Yeah. So cast and crew, we've talked about Fritz Lang a lot. We can keep talking about Fritz Lang. Um, I'm really interested in his relationship with his wife. Yeah, so his uh, his wife is uh, Thea von Harbo. I think that's how her name is pronounced. Um, she was, you know, his most important collaborator. Um, she was the the screenwriter, or in, you know, in some cases, co screenwriter with Lang on pretty much all of his early German work. Um, and in some cases, she even like wrote uh, novels alongside. Uh, the screenplays for the movie. So like Metropolis, for example, uh, actually came out as a novel a little bit before the movie did. And she was kind of writing both the screenplay and the novel simultaneously. But yeah, they, they wound up uh, divorcing and, you know, Lang, which I'm sure we'll talk more about. He, he left Germany shortly after this movie was due to be released. You know, he, would always claim at least to be very like anti-Nazi and Harbaugh uh, was pro-Nazi basically. Well, Fritz Lang was Jewish, right? Yeah. I, I believe he had some, some Jewish heritage. Um, or like one of his parents was Jewish. I, I forget if it was his mother or his father and uh, a little bit of a strange, strange history there. And she would later make, as far as I know, some propaganda films for, for the Nazis, if I remember right. Yeah, she actually directed those. Yeah, um, you know, which according to Fritz Lang is kind of like the offer that, and we'll get more into this later, I'm sure, but an offer, an offer that was made to Fritz Lang, like, do you want to make movies for the Nazis? And and that, and you know, it didn't happen, but it did with Harbaugh, uh, at least on, on a few occasions. So uh, yeah, they, they certainly parted ways around this time. Um, uh, so the cinematography is by Karl Vosch and Fritz Arno Wagner. Uh, Wagner was a very well-known cinematographer in early German cinema. Uh, he shot some of the great classics of that time, including Nosferatu, uh, West, West Front, 1918, uh, a really great anti-war movie, and a lot of Lang's uh, earlier movies as well. So 
um you know it was both Vosh and Wagner doing the cinematography for this movie but Wagner I think was the more uh celebrated and kind of long-standing cinematographer between the two of them really incredible work in this movie yeah it really stands out um as well as the music I thought was pretty cool by Hans Erdmann um it is a unique sound uh blend of not just music but sound effects the soundscape yeah, one one of the cool things about both this movie and M is they were were pretty early silent movies uh, in Germany, and so you could you could really see that you know they put a lot of thought into how the sound was going to be used, and you know whereas now it's usually just kind of taken as a as a given and sound and in most mainstream movies sound is just kind of used you know, semi-realistically mm-hmm. and you don't really think about it here. It's like you, you, you can tell they really put thought into the, the impact they wanted each sound to have. And, and, you know, they, they play with that too a little bit where there are some scenes that basically play out silently. Yeah. I got to watch rewatch M at some point because Otto Wernicke <laughs> taking a guess on that one uh, was also playing inspector Loman in that film. And I just think that's great that Lang has an ensemble of people he works with and trusts and can get pretty good performances out of. Uh, can I mention one thing about Otto Wernicke real quick? Or I guess more about Inspector Lohman, actually. Oh, please. <laughs> a very, really totally unexpected comparison came up to me on this viewing, which I had never really occurred to me before. But I was thinking of uh, Wendell Pierce's character from the TV show The Wire. Mm-hmm. I can't think of the character's name right now, but he's a fantastic character. And what, sorry, what is it? Uh, Bunk. Bunk. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And I don't know if it's the fact that he's a police detective and like always chomping on his cigar and seems like a little bit like, <laughs> you know, a cynical, sarcastic sense of humor. But I was like, wow, why am I thinking of The Wire right now? It was a very unexpected comparison. But I think Loman, Loman um, is sort of that archetype, that archetypal cigar chomping, ornery detective who's kind of bumbling who doesn't who kind of just has clues fall into his lap rather than him like actually doing detecting (laughs) yeah and you see it in so many other shows like the wire or columbo whatever yeah columbo too that's a good point and, and, you know, at, at the beginning of the Testament of Dr. Mabuso, we see that Loman, like, wants to, like, skip out of work and go to an opera, like, which he's never been able to do before because he always has to, like, be on the job. And, of course, yet again, he has to skip the opera for this new case that he has to solve. So, yeah, uh, yeah, it's a good sense of humor. And I, I think it did influence a lot of other, you know, later TV and movie detectives that we would see later on. Right. To carry on the mantle, the legacy of Dr. Mabusa. There's a slight change of topic, but I do want to shout out the movie Spies, which Fritz Lang made in 1928, I think. Uh, that's probably my third favorite Lang movie, third or fourth. Um, it's up there with Testament of Dr. Mabusa, M, and Scarlet Street. Uh, but Spies, it, it does kind of overlap with what we were just talking about, because that movie is so much about technology and media and surveillance Um you know, the sort of like international spy kingpin or, or, you know, kind of almost a Blofeld type character, like a supervillain is able to sort of like, um, you know, run his operation through all this different technology. And, and actually the Tom Gunning book that I brought up before, does a fantastic job of sort of like 
um, linking that with silent cinema and like all these different developments that were taking place in like the late 1920s and, you know, kind of like the first half of the 20th century in general. Uh, so, so spies is really great. And apparently that was just a theme that Lang was fascinated with throughout his entire career. And it comes up over and over again in some pretty fascinating ways. Sounds like it. Um, I want to get into the production backstory and release of the Testament of Dr. Mabusa. Before we do that, got to shout out our official t-shirt partner, banditsemporium.com. You can check out a, a selection of monster inspired t-shirts at banditsemporium.com. You can find their link in our bio. And best part is you buy a t-shirt, part of the proceeds go to support Camp Kaiju, which is always pretty cool. Matt and I appreciate that. Frank and you Frankaholics appreciate it. Um, you can do all that again at banditsemporium.com. As they say, we sell shirts. As Camp Kaiju says, the thousand eyes are watching you. Click on the link to banditsemporium.com. Okay, it was banned by Nazi propagandist Joseph Goebbels, who was the head of Nazi propaganda. Essentially, at this point in time in history, post-World War I, uh, 1920s Germany was just an awful place to live. It was a republic, the Weimar Republic, but inflation was absolutely out of control. Everybody was struggling financially, and this allowed certain fringe groups to become popular. One of those being the Nazi party and Adolf Hitler. They spoke to people's frustrations. And in 1933, the Nazi party formed, was able to form a coalition with some uh, capitalists in the Berlin, in the government there. And they appointed Hitler chancellor. The same year, Dr. Mabusa comes out. But people in Germany had known about Hitler, had known about Nazi ideology for several years Throughout the 1920s, this was not new to them. So Fritz Lang absolutely knew what he was doing by putting some stark warnings about fanatic, radical thinking in the, his character of Dr. Mabusa and drawing those parallel lines between Dr. Mabusa and his criminal empire and Adolf Hitler in his political slash criminal empire. Yeah, and it's a it's a really powerful metaphor, I think. You know, there's a there's a book by Siegfried Krakauer that came out in 1947. He was a German philosopher and writer from the Frankfurt School who then moved to the United States. And so this book was kind of charting how, you know, German cinema like presented ideology that might have sort of like aided Hitler's coming to power and how you know, seemingly kind of like innocuous media, like movies, radio, TV, advertisements, or whatever, could actually convey like a very destructive and harmful ideology. And and in that book, Krakauer was, was very critical of the testament of Dr. Mabusa, and he was skeptical that like, you know, he thought that Lang was making a big deal out of the metaphor, but that he was kind of like speaking in hindsight or whatever Lang was when he sort of built up that metaphor. But I mean, Krakauer was like a philosopher with a capital P who I think sort of only liked obscure things. I think he was probably a little bit put off by like the pulpiness of the Testament of Dr. Mabusa, which is one of the things I love about it. And uh, I think he's giving viewers too little credit. Like I think definitely viewers in Germany at this time, I would imagine it would be very hard to like not notice the, um, uh, you know, the critical power of the representation of Dr. Mabusa in this film. Mm -hmm. And Joseph Goebbels... And Hitler, they loved movies. Like, these dudes 
like were cinephiles. They not only enjoyed movies as audience members, but they understood the power film could have with propaganda and spreading messages. And Goebbels approached Lang, as we said before, said, hey, I want you to head our film propaganda department. And Lang was like, no, have you seen Dr. Babusa? (laughs) (laughs) I'm uh, paraphrasing. No, I'm just making this conversation up. Um, But Goebbels did see Mabusa, did not care for it as much as Lang's 1920s works. Yeah, and actually there's some dispute about whether that that meeting even took place from what I understand. I I guess, well, I know Goebbels kept very like detailed diaries and apparently there's no record in those of the meeting with Lang. I mean, it it does seem plausible that, you know, if if you're going to try to get, if, if you're in Germany in the early 30s and you're going to try to get somebody to lead up your film division that, you know, Lang was arguably the very best in Germany at that time, along with like F.W. Murnau. And, but yeah, there's dispute on, on whether that actually happened. And yeah. you know, Lang tells that story, or he would tell that story in later years about how, uh, you know, supposedly he had that meeting and then like, fled from Germany that same night, like, (laughs) like, like he was part of his own suspense movie or something there. But, um, apparently his, uh, you know, like bank records and his passport and things, biographers in, in later years found out, you know, that he actually kind of went back and forth between Germany and France, uh, several times throughout 1933. I also read that Goebbels would, um, you know, he like decried the movie in public, but then supposedly he had like a private print of like the uncut version, like the original version of the film was 124 minutes, I think. And then it was reduced to 111 minutes for like, uh, like when it was distributed or shown in other countries. But supposedly Goebbels had like the complete version in his private collection and would like show it for like, presumably Nazi friends when they came over to sort of like, uh, well, who knows, like design their horrible like conquest of the world or whatever. Um, supposedly, you know, privately, he loved the movie or at least watched it very often, despite the fact that he, uh, you know, lambasted it in public. So who knows what he yeah. did. That just makes me think about um, additionally adding on to this. Goebbels banned the film from public in Germany on the basis that he thought it would corrupt people into a life of crime so his at least his official statement wasn't even about the political ideologies being presented in the film it was about the the so-called corruption that it would present to the masses (laughs) yeah like and and also how easily like those criminals could actually take over society through like very calculated like acts of terrorism right right you know we do kind of see that in the movie like yeah uh Goebbels, I guess, was not wrong about that. Of course, like the reason that Lang was like presenting or portraying that was like the complete opposite of what Goebbels was, um, you know, worried about. But um, but yeah, the movie does kind of portray that. And that's what's so interesting. It, it, it does spell out a sort of anarchy. And I read a lot of we don't have to get into this just for the sake of time. But uh, I did read a lot of comparisons to the character of Dr. Mabusa in this film to the Joker in Christopher Nolan's Batman film. And I was like, oh, I can see that. The Joker is just wanting to sow chaos, the same as Dr. Mabusa. 
So Lang, I, I'm trying to remember the name of it. It's called like Screen Prelude or something like that. And I think it was where like directors or artists could like write sort of like introductions to their work and then it would be placed in like magazines and newspapers to like draw publicity. So Lang, I think this must have been for a later re-release in the United States or something, but he wrote, uh, the film was made as an allegory to show Hitler's processes of terrorism. Slogans and doctrines of the Third Reich have been put into the mouths of criminals in the film. Thus, I hoped to expose the masked Nazi theory of the necessity to deliberately destroy everything which is precious to a people. Then, when everything collapsed and they were thrown into utter despair, they would try to find help in the new order. Uh, and I think maybe this is what Krakauer was talking a little bit, where like Lang was talking in hindsight and sort of like playing up the connections to, um, you know, or sort of like uh, emphasizing the critical nature of it. I, I definitely think that is true. Like Frank said, like clearly this is an anti-Nazi movie, but like this quote seems a little bit sort of like uh, overwritten, I guess. Like certainly the movie is a more powerful sort of like delineation of these themes. But I think for sure, like what the movie is showing is how like, when tyrants or you know people in position of power uh do so fear and chaos then like people will follow them because they're scared and they'll start to believe that like those tyrants who in many cases are responsible for that fear and disorder in the first place are the only people that can save them uh that's one of the more powerful themes in the movie i think yeah that makes me think um so again considering the the uh just wrecked economy and the jobless rate, not only in Germany at the time, but 1933 was the whole world was in a great depression. So people turn to people who they think can help them out. And the character of Kent in this film, there's a really, I think, important scene where he is at a job unemployment office and he can't get any help from the government institution that's supposed to help him. And in a in a, a fit of rage, he shouts to everybody, you're going to make me a criminal because I have to turn to this crime lord because it's the only way I can survive because my institutions have failed me. Um, and that's what happens. And I think that alone is the most reflective scene of society at the time, I feel like. Yeah, I agree. That's a very important flashback. And you know, I'll, I'll say that, like, the, the story of uh, Kent and Lily is maybe not the most interesting part of this movie. Like, I, I love this movie very much, of course, but if there is a flaw, like, I feel like that makes it drag just a little bit. But also, I think it's extremely important because, like, the, the criminality of Mabusa is contrasted with the criminality of Kent, which is not, you, you know, really criminality, arguably. Like, you know, like you just said, Vincent, he's pushed into that situation. So, um, so it is, it's an important contrast, for sure. He's the everyman. Yeah. Push to the edge. Relatable. It's, you know, I just think it's fascinating that, like, the man behind the curtain, like, when the curtain's finally pulled apart, yeah. it is a microphone and a loudspeaker. Um, and, and, like, earlier in the film also, like, we see that first Mabusa and then, at, like, at the end, Professor Baum, they're, like, scribbling in their, like, uh, diary or their journal or whatever, you know? <clears throat> Excuse me. So I feel like the movie does a really good job of showing that, like, the way that these villains, these, like, uh, emperors of crime or whatever you want to call them the way that they sort of like sow their chaos is through media and i just think that's a really prescient theme um you know like there's uh, i i feel like the microphone and the loudspeaker kind of imply radio the film itself implies cinema like the scribble the scribbling in the journal obviously implies like literature and writing um 
And I, I, you know, like Mabusa is called a hypnotist, but I think like it's not really hypnosis per se that like allows him to sort of make people follow him. It's like this media itself, you know? And I just think that's a really fascinating theme, especially for this time in 1933. That theme goes hand in hand, I think, with things we, questions we are struggling with today in our modern world with the internet, social media, every news channel spouting every ideology there is and and the power of media to affect change not only for the better but for the worse one one of those themes that unfortunately is is timeless <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah like probably as soon as the printing press was made in like 1450 something whenever that <laughs> yeah. was like automatically that theme was relevant true the church you know the vatican tried to shut that down <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> they knew. They knew the power right away. Yeah. Ah, it's all about control of messaging and modes of communication. Yeah, which is fascinating stuff. I love it. Uh, you know, you can say the whole like, oh man is the monster, and that certainly is kind of true in this case. But, mm-hmm. but as we've talked about, like the supernatural elements, I think at various points, like Mabusa and Baum are made to seem like a ghost or a hypnotist, sort of like Dr. Caligari. Mm. Or uh, or even a zombie. Like, there's a line. Uh, uh, yeah, so Dr. Crom has this line. Uh, he's speaking about Mabusa. He says, it's possible that his dead brain has come back to life. Mm. And in this particular instance, he's referring to, like, Mabusa's, like, he seems brain dead, but he's actually still, like, exerting his influence or whatever, you know? Yeah. But I love that line, and I think it's sort of, it's very zombie-like. And I think, uh, you know, there are monsters in this movie beyond just, like, the awful that like men are capable of, which is really fascinating. It presents a, a gray area. I think, you know, just looking at it, um, fact-based, you know, you could say that Dr. Babusa is the spectral vision. It's supernatural for our purposes here. It's a strange beast, supernatural ghost. Let's, let's do it. But I think this movie is really interesting because I wasn't sure if Mabusa was a literal ghost or if he was just a mental break or a, just a mental vision that Dr. Baum was having. Yeah, that interpretation is definitely there. And I, you know, I think whether, you know, whether the supernatural stuff is read literally or figuratively, like the metaphorical power is still kind of the same, you know, like this, mm-hmm. the same, you, you arrive at the same conclusion. Um, but, but yeah, the supernatural stuff definitely makes it more visceral, more intense, more disturbing. Yeah, I think it actually works equally well either way you interpret it, whether you think it's supposed to be something that's literally happening or just just like a reflection of these people's mental states. It's mm-hmm. equally effective either way to me. When the when the, the vision of Mabusa passes the book off to Dr. Baum, and there's like a literal physical transition, then I was like, oh, maybe it is a real ghost. I don't know. <laughs> It's such an amazing moment, and like the the music is so eerie. There's like a high pitched shriek throughout that entire scene, and then like suddenly when he like hands that book over, there's like a thud of like a bass drum and just like silence all of a sudden. It's mm-hmm. one of many examples of just like brilliant use of sound in this movie. Yeah, absolutely. Monstrous ideologies. Yep, it doesn't matter who propagated those ideas is alive or dead, in power or not. The destructive influence on society is still present. You know, like Mabusa's in his in his cell in the insane asylum, and uh, you know, still exerting his influence. Uh, Trump is not literally in power anymore, and 
hopefully will be in a jail cell at some point, but like, you know, his destructive influence is still like rampaging throughout the country and is not going to go away anytime soon. So, but, but think about Adolf Hitler. He wrote Mein Kampf in a jail cell. Yeah. And from, I mean, you see this with a lot of historical figures. They write their manifestos in prison. Fidel Castro did that. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. wrote his letters from a Birmingham jail. I guess what else do you have to do? But uh, but seriously, it, it can affect change for the worse, um, as we've seen. I also saw, so like the, the Nazi parallels were very present, but I was also seeing a lot of things that in hindsight, you could say, oh, that's like foreshadowing what was to come during World War II, which is just fun to think about because obviously Lang didn't know what he was doing. But when um, when the criminals are are holed up in their apartment and with the shootout with Loman and the the one criminal shoots himself, I was like, oh, man, that's Hitler in his bunker. Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. I didn't yeah. Even think about that, but you're right. Like, did Hitler <laughs> in his final moments, was he like, this is my Dr. Babusa moment? <laughs> that thought did not occur to me, but that's yeah, <laughs> it's possible. Yeah, nor would it have to anyone in 33, but in hindsight, you can you can look at that. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, also with, like, people, you know, not to uh, belabor the point too much, I guess, but, like, for people that, like, follow these figures that think that they're going to, like, lead them to salvation or whatever, and then if those figures are, like, taken out of power or, like, put in prison or killed or whatever, then they become martyrs, and that's arguably even more dangerous, you know? Yeah. So yeah, the the negative, the the destructive influence keeps on going. Kind of whatever happens to those people, which is a scary thought, you know. Yeah, that's that's like a piece of like mass psychology. We don't even have time to get into, but God, like the cult of personality, like what is that, and what drives people to latch onto these figures? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Was there anything we haven't mentioned yet? Uh, one thing, uh, you know, on the form and aesthetic, that's a, a really interesting thing that this movie does and that M also did is the thing where, um, uh, like different characters are kind of ending the sentence that another character starts, like somebody starts a phrase and then you cut to another, another scene in a different location and somebody kind of ends that sentence, you know, the, and that's something you, you see it kind of plays more thematically into what M is doing, where it's showing like all these different levels of society and how they're they're working together. Uh, but that's that's always kind of like a cool way to transition between scenes, I think. And you see it more forcefully in in these movies than you do in in most. Um, it's something that comes up too in kind of a more sophisticated form in uh, Citizen Kane which does that quite a bit where like somebody starts saying something and then you cut to like years later and someone finishes a sentence and you're in a totally different spot. So that's uh, just, I think a really cool, like flashy editing touch. I think there's a cool example of that in the Testament of Dr. Mabuso, where there's a conversation about like why Mabusa or like whoever the ringleader is, is like committing all these criminal acts, but like doesn't really care about money, doesn't want to get like, you know, wealth or power from it. But like that conversation is taking place between like two criminals over here, like in their lair or whatever. And then it's taking place over here between two policemen. And at first it's really baffling. It's like, wait, who are these people and how do they get into this shot? And then you realize that it's like different sides of law and order. 
which again is like a big theme in them as well. Um, but they're sort of having the same conversation. It's, uh, it's really, really cool. And every time you notice something new, like it's just so complex and fascinating. Yeah, that's what I took from it. There are so many genres being presented in this film. It's not just a straight crime movie. It's not a straight horror film. It has those elements, but it also has a romantic subplot between Kent and Lily. It has fantasy. It has uh, obviously thriller, some action, really great action set pieces at the end with the exploding chemical plant. And then it's it's all political too. So um, it, yeah, in terms of good, the bad, and campy, I mean, you guys want to get into it? Let's go for it. Just the visuals uh, throughout this movie are just uh, totally remarkable. Um, and, you know, I, I think, you know, this might be kind of a hot take, but I, I think this movie has the best special effects I've seen in anything ever. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I, particularly that scene, you know, the, that you were talking about earlier, Vincent, with um, like the, the apparition of, of Mabusa talking to Professor Baum and sort of like inhabiting him possibly mm-hmm. or whatever it, that's just like such a r- remarkably intense scene and, and the fact that they would have had to do all this stuff in camera and everything is just like mind-blowing that they <laughs> that they could even like figure out how to how to do this stuff at all and make it look so great and there's also that that scene that matt mentioned earlier where um hoffmeister has the uh I think it's Lowman and, and someone else are coming to visit him in the hospital and he sees what he thinks are those, uh, like the assassins from Mabusa's mm-hmm. gang who are coming to get him. And yeah, just, just absolutely remarkable. And and there's so much stuff here that is just like, like the way it's, it's framed and just like arranged on the screen. And even the way it's like timed in the editing is just like so precise you know it's just like remarkable craftsmanship and you know there's that that great scene where uh the co-worker of of professor baum is killed in in traffic yeah when they're at the uh the stoplight and uh and this is another great use of sound too when they um you know everyone is like honking their horns Mm -hmm. they want to get across and then suddenly um the honking stops except for the one horn that's still bleeding you can hear that one horn through the cacophony of the other horns. Yeah. Wow, oh, man. Yeah, I was. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was hooked at that point. Yeah, and, and you don't you don't actually like see him get shot or anything, but it's just yeah. such an effective way of of conveying like, okay, everyone else has moved on, uh, but this guy's car is still here. Yep. And then it's just, yeah, the whole thing is just like so flawlessly executed, and it's just that that's why. That kind of stuff is why Lang is my favorite filmmaker because he just does all of that stuff so so perfectly to the point that like you can't even imagine somebody possibly executing it better. That's sort of an echo of a scene in Spies, also not to like bring up that movie again, but there's like a really amazing like assassination that takes place early in that film, which I won't ruin here. But uh, yeah, it's a cool echo of that scene in The Testament of Doctor Mabusa. That is a great movie too. I'm glad you're you're bringing that up. I need to I need to rewatch that one actually. But yeah, really like all of Lang's early German stuff is 
or at least all of us of the survived. I know a few of the real early silent ones that, you know, are lost, but, uh, but yeah, all, all of this stuff from early Germany that you can still see today is, is pretty fantastic. Um, just the things I really liked about this film, um, not just the crime, but it had a really early, it had a noir sense to it, which predates like the hardcore golden age of noir of the forties and fifties. Um, again, I'm seeing those seeds of, of things to come in the history of film, which I really love. There was a shot where Loman had like Venetian blind shadows across his face. Like that's quintessential noir. Along those lines, the script was so uh, urban, I feel like. Like the criminals, their language was very, um, like they're using a lot of slang. And it was just very realistic. And I appreciated that. Um, well, just to add to that, like, I think at the, the part of the beginning when Hoffmeister first escapes, like, the lair or whatever, and then he, like, gets out into these, like, weirdly abandoned streets, mm. and then the gang tries to kill him in several different ways by, like, uh, pushing an explosive barrel at him. Like, just, like, the that world, I, this just to, like, sort of, like, um, reiterate what you're talking about, that world is so bizarre and, like, vacant and, like, where is this like barren wasteland that this is all taking place? You know, it's supposed to be in like a big city in Germany, but it looks like nobody lives there. It's <laughs> yeah. yeah. That explosion looks insane too. That's another, another great visual early on. Yeah. Yeah. But I, it, this might be a weird continent too, but I, I feel like, like this movie and M really probably more M more so than, than this movie. But I, I feel like these movies kind of make me like understand like the Holocaust and World War II more <laughs> in, a, in a weird way, just in like a, like a psychological way. Like I, I feel like, okay, if this is like, you know, even as just like a fanciful depiction of what Germany was like at this time, it's like, okay, I can kind of see, you can kind of connect the dots of like how, you know, it, it gets from, you know, this super desperate world into, yeah you know, just the horrors of, of what was to come. How it how it starts at on like the literal street level with a gang of criminals and how over a period of 20, 25 years, it did become not just the national government, but a world threatening empire. Mm -hmm. Like that's that's the trajectory of Dr. Mabusa. Like if this film doesn't end with his defeat, that's the sequel. That's the the series. That's where he goes at the end of this film. Yeah. And I think like the ending is so striking because like it, it seems like Baum is defeated and, and Mabusa is dead. But, you know, as we've seen, like the fact that like Baum is in the in the cell in the mental asylum doesn't really mean anything. Like it, it could just keep on happening, you know, yeah. like sort of nonstop. So, yeah, uh, kind of like sort of a, a depressing thought to end on. But that's, you know, appropriate for the time. Absolutely. Um, I struggled with the bad. Uh, I was trying to read other people's thoughts about the film just to maybe get some ideas. And I do think like the movie runs close to two hours. It's good, solid, clean. However, by the end stretch, when Bomb is on the run and he's in the car and we spend a little bit more time than I would have liked on just exploding the chemical plant, I was like, okay, I feel like 
we get it. We could we could speed this up a little bit, but it's not distracting ultimately. I sort of got the impression that like they spent so much time and effort and money destroying that plant. They were like, all right, we have to use as much of this footage as possible. Yeah, which is fair. That's fair. It is a really impressive explosion. Yeah. It is. Yeah, so I, I was, um, you know, like like I mentioned, this, you know, I've seen this movie a bunch of times. And so I was trying, I knew we were going to have to do the good, the bad, and the campy for this. So I'm like, all right, what is what is bad in this movie? <laughs> and uh, I, I will say, we, we kind of talked about it a little bit earlier, but the, um, the Kent and Lily relationship, you know, I, I think Kent is a good character, um, but Lily has like, no personality basically <laughs> i mean she's literally like just there to be his love interest and to help move the plot along yeah you know, very attractive woman and everything but uh you know she fulfills her plot function well enough i guess but mm-hmm. but yeah really no personality whatsoever and you know that character could have been given a little more depth yeah, I, I think that's pretty much all I have for the bad category as well. And I, I think, like, you know, that that stuff drags a little bit, largely because everything else works so well. You know what I mean? Like, uh, I, I think in, like, a different movies or, like, uh, another movie where, like, not everything else was so, like, amazing all the time, then, like, the Kent and Lily stuff would probably seem a little bit better. But in this case, it's just, like, significant or, you know, noticeably not as interesting as everything else in the movie. Their escape, though... I did find pretty interesting. Like I've never seen that before. Yeah. I do think it's funny that the time bomb has like a three hour long fuse. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the, the room, this is kind of campy though. The water in the room is just funneling out like a bathtub because it's in the coming, you know, the holes in the floor, Uh high adventure. Uh, so yeah, well, speaking of campy, I will say uh, Loman uh, had a couple of lines that stuck out to me as, Really just delightful. There was one line in particular. He's really happy about something. He's like seemingly cracked the case. And he he exclaims with his fists, I'm going to get as high as a kite tonight. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, good for you, man. Yeah, Loman in general. And it's funny because in M, he's a a much more serious character. Unless he's kind of like a bumbling fool. Yeah. (laughs) uh, it it's kind of like corny dad humor, but it it's very charming and just it it works in the movie really well. Yeah, I agree. I it's you know it's harder for me to think of the campy because like for the bad it's like the Kent and Lily stuff. For the campy, like it probably is Loman. It's the the escape from that um, cell that we were just talking about. Uh, aside from that, like I you know like this movie does such a good job of like. Uh, presenting like really pretty bleak and troubling ideas in like an exciting adventure driven way. So, um, I, you know, it's it's hard to find anything campy in here. I think. No, I think that's all right. I mean, this this movie ultimately it takes its drama very seriously. I I will say for the campy too, some of the uh, like heavily stylized acting. It's it's really it it works in the movie because it fits the the whole aesthetic and everything, but. Yeah, there's there's definitely some very like some acting that would be I, I guess considered kind of like overly expressive by today's standards. And there's the butler, uh, Bombs Butler, who's always like, "You can't go in, you can't disturb him." And him and Loman have a tiff in the hallway. And 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 again, drawing the parallel to loyalty to a 
a fanatic. Like this, this Butler is, dare I say, just following orders. But that doesn't excuse him from standing in Loman's way. But at the same time, if like economic straits are so dire in Germany at the time, that guy probably needs his job like desperately, you know? So that's so true. He's like, if I was that actor playing the butler, I'd be like, this movie is just about a butler who's trying to keep his job. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. Uh, so without further ado, let's get to our final ratings. Uh, our rating scale, once again, for you Camp Kaiju listeners, is uh, the first highest level. Uh, it's a timeless classic. It definitely stands the test of time. Uh, number two is there may be some antiquated moments, but overall it's great and it stands the test of time. Number three, it may be historically significant or just fun, but it does not stand the test of time. And uh, the fourth and lowest rating, it is not worth watching or revisiting. It definitely does not stand the test of time. Terrible movie does not stand the test of time. No, it's <laughs> it's it's definitely definitely timeless classic for me. I I'd consider it a a masterpiece, and yeah, it's it's one of my favorites. Yeah, this is also one of my favorite movies. Uh, thank you, Frank, for originally lending this to me maybe 15 or so years ago. Uh, it's a timeless classic. It stands the test of time. One of the best movies ever made. You know, I have to say, it is also a timeless classic. It stands the test of time. Not only was it so impactful politically at the year it was made, but that's why it stands the test of time because the issues it raises with messaging and modes of communication and fanatics and politics we're still struggling with those issues today uh i feel like we're a little spoiled in the month of october because next time we're talking about another one of my favorite movies uh i walked with a zombie by jacques tourneur uh produced by val luton uh that pair also made cat people the original cat people uh i walked with a zombie in my opinion is even better i cannot wait to talk about it I can't either. We talked about 1942's Cat People last October um, on Camp Kaiju with one Matt Levine. I can't wait to wa- watch I Walk With a Zombie. We may, either, we may also touch on other zombie films. Uh, White Zombie from the early 30s. Maybe some more recent zombie films. Uh, we're going zombie mode, y'all. So it's going to be fun. Uh, yeah. Um, and you know, Frank, uh, you know, we should have you back again. We'd love to have you back. Hopefully sometime soon we'll, uh, be discussing another movie if you would like to join us. Yeah, absolutely. It's always really fun to do this. Yeah. We've, we've run through my, my list of the three suggestions I, I gave you a few months back, but, um, but yeah, always happy to talk about, uh, about movies, especially great ones like the one we talked about tonight. So thanks again for having me on. I really enjoy doing it. And thank you all for hanging out. If you liked what you heard, please tell a friend, leave a rating and review, and visit CampKaijuMovieReviews.com, Instagram, or even Patreon for more monster movie content. Links in our bio. We can't thank you enough. Camp Kaiju is recorded with your help in the Twin Cities with music by Terrence Jackson. Oh, and before I forget, Camp Kaiju is sponsored by BanditsEmporium.com where you can shop exclusive monster-inspired t-shirts with part of those proceeds supporting this show. BanditsEmporium.com. Find the link in our bio. As they say, we sell shirts. And again, as Camp Kaiju says, thank you, friends. And until next time, stay campy.